Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Coming up on the show today, Yasha Monk, author of the new book, The Identity Trap, a story of ideas and power in our time. Uh, Yasha, welcome to Bookstack. Thank you so much. And congratulations on the new book. So what is The Identity Trap? Well, I think there's a novel ideology, a new set of ideas about race, gender and sexual orientation that has become tremendously influential in mainstream institutions over a short period of time. Um, now, I think that those ideas are appealing for a very understandable reason. They promise to fight and remedy real injustices, real forms of discrimination. They claim that they are the ideas that can do that in the most radical and the most consistent way. So there's a real lure here. Um, but I think that ultimately, uh, these ideas won't help us to build a more tolerant, a more prosperous, a more just society. The people who adopt them are going to end up being lured into a trap. And that trap is uh, political, but also personal. It's a political trap because, as we've seen in the last years, uh, many progressive institutions that have really embraced these ideas have had internal meltdowns, have found it really hard to actually uh, serve their missions. It's a trap because often the uh, policies adopted by uh, uh, people who believe in these ideas end up being really counterproductive, actually uh, perpetuating disadvantage rather than overcoming it. It's a political trap because it actually is going to help uh, far-right populists win elections in a way that's very damaging to actual victims of injustice. And finally, I think it's a personal trap. It promises to people that they're going to gain recognition and respect in society by doubling down on thinking of themselves uh, as being defined by the particular intersection of identities in which they stand. Uh, and I don't think that that is the right way for people to gain respect and recognition for who they truly are, which is always uh, a, a question of, of them as individuals and not just them as an intersection of identities. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that the last one that you used there was that it's a personal trap. And uh, whereas the previous ones had been about politics, and very often politics seems to be detached from ordinary people's lives. But you actually start the book with an anecdote. It's the story uh, of a, um, a, a black parent who wanted a specific teacher uh, for her child, has a very nice correspondence with the school, but doesn't get put in that particular class. And eventually the principal of the school says that that's because um, it's not the black class. Uh, and that brings you up short and in some ways uh, encapsulates everything that follows in the, in the rest of the book. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I find it really striking to speak to Kyla Posey, uh, this African-American educator who lives in the suburbs of Atlanta. And uh, sort of, the, I suppose, uh, morbid punchline of the story is that the principal who refused to allow her daughter to uh, join the class that she thought was right for her based on the teacher and other things. Something that every parent understands. Right. Uh, and that principal was herself a black woman who was deeply influenced by a new set of progressive ideas um, whose origins I trace in the book, um, which basically says that uh, the purpose of a good education is to get people to think of themselves as racial beings, to lean as strongly as possible into the identities foreordained by the groups into which they are born. And in order to uh, do that, 
they need to be around mostly people of their own group, of their own race, of their own identity. Even if a class is very well, in, even if a child is very well integrated into uh, a social environment, if they don't have a lot of peers of the same identity group, that is a problem. Beverly Tatum, one of the most influential educators, has written. And this has inspired pedagogical practices that many of the listeners to this podcast will have experienced um, in their own lives or in the lives of their children. There are now many private schools in particular in which teachers come into classrooms in the third grade, in the second grade, in the first grade, and separate kids out by race, saying for this set of lessons, for this uh, period of time, black kids are going to go over there, and Tino kids are going to go over there, and Asian kids are going to go over there. And by the way, white kids are going to go over there. I, I, I have broader misgivings about this pedagogical approach. I particularly worry about what's going to happen to the white kids, not because they might be uncomfortable, which I think in a good education you sometimes will be, that, that's fine, um, but because everything I've, I've learned about history and about social science tells me that how we identify is very variable. But once you say, this is my group and that over there is the other group, you're much more likely to fight for the interests of your group than for that of other groups. So even for these educators at places like Dalton and uh, uh, Sidwell Friends and um, uh, Bank Street School uh, uh, for Kids, uh, very prestigious schools, many of which educate uh, teachers themselves, have the purpose of uh, you know convincing these kids to be good anti-racist activists, of declaiming the white privilege. I think it's more likely, if adopted at scale, that these kind of uh, practices uh, will uh, produce white supremacists, will produce racists rather than anti-racists. Well, and, and it's interesting as well, because the key thing that that cuts out is any notion of class um, and, and a sense of uh, that if, if you're divided into these kinds of affinity groups, as you as you described them at the uh, at the beginning of the book, that, that class plays almost no role in that in, and specifically poverty. Right. Well, and we also have a sort of strange phenomenon more broadly in America where a lot of the time the leaders of particular identity groups are really socioeconomically cut off from uh, most of the people in those communities, right? So they are people who either come from very upper middle class backgrounds um, or perhaps are scholarship kids in private school environments, which is a very strange way to grow up because you go back to a poor neighborhood with real challenges, but you're around these super privileged people, right? Uh, and that often ends up being the people who are the spokespeople for a group whose political views then ends up being very, very different, right? So that's that's one sort of element of of a socioeconomic uh, problem. But but you're right that well, I think there's a few things here. Right, one is that it also forces people to identify in ways that may be alien to them. I spoke to one good friend the other day who, in his first day in college, uh, was made to do this exercise. He felt uncomfortable with it, but he didn't quite know how to speak up against it. But one of the choices he had to make on the fly is. One of his parents is African-American. One of his parents is Latino. So do I go to the black group or the Latino group? Um, and you end up going to the black group because of, you know, certain American notions about the one drop rule and so on, I assume. But he felt that he had actually denied half of his heritage by making the choice. That there was something about it that actually did violence to his own self-conception, right? Um, and, and that, I think, is uh, one of the ways in which this is a personal trap. It forces you to identify in simplistic ways. And, and it makes us false promise about how you're going to be seen. The point about class is a very important one. Um, you know, in the book, I, it has four parts. Part one really tells the intellectual history of where these ideas come from uh, in a serious way, chronicling the thought of thinkers who I learned a lot from, even as I disagreed with them strenuously at times. 
The second part says, you know, how did these ideas actually come to have such purchase in the mainstream? How do they escape the academy in a sense? And the third part really critiques the main applications of these ideas to a broad range of topics from free speech to cultural appropriation to this kind of progressive separatism we're talking about now. But in the fourth part, I try to boil down the ideology to its main tenets. And one of the interesting things, I think, is that the first main tenet of this ideology is to say, to understand the world, you have to look at it through the prism of race, gender, and sexual orientation. That is primary over everything else. Uh, you know, Robin D'Angelo, one of the great popularizers of this ideology, uh, somebody whose thought is rather less subtle than uh, uh, some of the theorists who helped to constitute it, once said that every time a white person interrupts a black person, they're bringing the whole apparatus of white supremacy to bear on them. And that, again, uh, completely blanks out any other consideration, right? Perhaps this is true. If there's a class element as well, perhaps this is a white boss who is exploiting his workers and telling them to shut up when they complain. And perhaps you can describe that in her terms in a certain kind of way. Perhaps these are best friends who are uh, arguing with each other about politics and they love interrupting each other and they interrupt each other on equal terms, right? Um, uh, perhaps... Uh, the, the social classes are, are reversed in this particular case, and, and 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 so we might describe it differently. That is not a subtlety that is available when you say, this is the master prism, the principal way of seeing society, um, uh, you know, without actually being attuned to to the great variation and variety in social situations. And it is one of the it's one of the interesting things that as you talk about that intellectual genealogy that. It's, it's fascinating to me that actually when you go back to some of the original writers, people like Derek Bell or Patricia Williams and so on, that there's much more subtlety in their writing than the kind of very uh, two-dimensional way in which their ideas have been absorbed into the mainstream and end up making decisions about which child ends up in which particular class at an elementary school. Yeah, there's two things that really struck me as I figured out what the right genealogy is. And uh, spoiler alert, it's not cultural Marxism. I think it's just a category mistake. Um, and, and, and retrospective thinkers. Um, and, you know, one of the things that struck me is that uh, they're very, very interesting thinkers who you can learn a lot from, um, uh, who had responses to the intellectual and political challenges of their time, which are in many ways understandable, where you can have a lot of sympathy and empathy with where they end up. And, and many of them ended up themselves expressing quite clearly their concerns about what became of their ideas. Uh, you know, one of the favorite sections of a book for me is just a couple of pages called Careful What You Wish For, in which are chronicle that Foucault, who really influenced these ideas, I think for obvious reasons would have been quite skeptical of the way they are now applied. He was very worried about how even resistance to injustice can turn into a form of injustice itself. And any great liberatory promise is likely to go wrong, as he expressed in his famous debate with uh, uh, Noam Chomsky. Um, and others said this more explicitly. Um, uh, you know, these educational uh, ideas, these pedagogical ideas we've been talking about really are rooted in Gayatri Spivak's notion of strategic essentialism. But even though Philosophically speaking, certain uh, essentialist notions about identity are wrong. For practical political purposes, we should encourage people to think of themselves in that way because that's what it takes to do battle against oppression. She herself ended up saying that concept just became the union ticket for a more vulgar form of essentialism. It became the excuse for just pushing aside all of those philosophical concerns and actually essentializing people in worrying ways. And she made fun. 
she's from India, and obviously there's many people selling tea in the streets of India called Tea Wallace. She made fun of the identity Wallace at American universities um, who, who, who obsess about these things. So, so these thinkers are subtle. The other thing that struck me with them is that they, from the beginning, were explicitly opposed to philosophical liberalism. That from the very, from, from, from Foucault in his way, with his projection of grand narratives, including both Marxism and liberalism, uh, to the founders of critical race theory, like Derek Bell, they were explicitly setting themselves up against uh, liberalism and in the American context, the civil rights movement, right? Derek Bell says uh, that we need to reject the defunct racial equality ideology of the civil rights movement. Um, Kimberly Crenshaw says that the thought of Barack Obama is fundamentally at odds with the key tenets of critical race theory. And there's a fascinating passage in the introduction to critical race theory, this sort of canonical summary of the movement by uh, Richard Delgado and Jean Stefanczyk, um, where they say, well, of course, you know, we've only ever really fought against liberals. They were the real danger. And now that conservatives and more far-right people are having sort of a little bit more influence, you know, perhaps we're starting to think a little bit about them as well, right? Um, so, so yes, these are subtle thinkers, they're worth reading and taking seriously in their own right and to understand where these ideas come from, where the themes of our politics actually originate but they are, make no mistake, for deep intellectual reasons, fundamentally opposed to uh, the civil rights movement, to basic American institutions, and, and to liberalism. And that makes the debate about critical race theory so frustrating, because you have people on the right saying teaching kids about slavery is, is, is woke, is critical race theory, and that's absurd. But then you have smart people in the academy, some of my friends and colleagues, saying critical race theory, that's just wanting to think critically about race and the role it plays in society. No, you go back to the founders of that, they want to do much, much, much more than that. And it, it, is, it is interesting as well. I mean, you mentioned Marxism there, that actually some of the most effective critics of critical race theory have turned out to be old-fashioned Marxist theorists. Um, I mean, Ter Terry Eagleton would be, a, would be an example uh, of somebody who's, who's made various um, uh, critiques of this kind of thing. But there are others too that... Um, why do you think that is, and what? Why do you think? I mean, this the, and this book is an attempt to uh, try to change that. Uh, why do you think that? Um, I mean, can I characterize you as a liberal? I think I probably can. So, so why do you think it is that liberals have been so ineffective in dealing with this kind of thing? Oh, that's interesting. Um, let me answer the, the easy part of the of a question first about these Marxist critics, which are very interesting, and they're particularly the old school Marxists. Yes. Um, well, I think another important figure here is Adolf Reed Jr., um, uh, African-American Marxist scholar, um, I think now emeritus at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, you know, and, and some of that is because they recognize the easy ways in which uh, this ideology can be appropriated by the interests of capital and by big corporations um, uh, for two reasons. The first is that it focuses on the soul rather than on outcomes, right? When you think of uh, Ibram X. Kendi, or when you think of Robin DiAngelo, they are the two uh, uh, people who really bring the popularized version of these ideas into the mainstream. Um, it is all about uh, be really a Calvinist moral imagination, right? Like, do you accept your sin? And if not, then why are you rejecting the, the gospel, right? Why are you uh, too fragile? Uh, why you're evincing white fragility and refusing to self-flagellate in the ways that 
your diversity uh, instructor is uh, telling you. That is sort of the, the core of Robin DiAngelo's thought, right? Um, and deep down, uh, you know, there's no way of escaping the dualism of either being a racist or an anti-racist, right? You're either fully saved or you're fully evil. There's no such thing as being non-racist. So you better worry, you better make sure that you are non-racist. That is the core of uh, uh, Kendi's explicitly Manichaean uh, worldview. So these things are, are focused on the soul, right? Like, do you have some implicit bias in your head that makes you guilty, that marks you out for hell rather than heaven, right? And Marxists understandably say, no, what we care about is material outcomes. We want people's lives to be better. And, you know, these diversity trainings are not going to make people's lives better. So what are you talking about, right? So you can see a kind of hard-nosed materialism rearing its head against that. And, and the other thing is that, you know, if you actually care about uh, genuine equality for people in society, the very fashionable ideas about racial equity as opposed to racial equality uh, pose a real challenge. I chronicle that in a concrete way by talking about uh, decisions that the CDC made regarding the distribution of life-saving vaccines during the COVID pandemic in my book. Um, they rejected uh, uh, prioritizing older Americans for the vaccine, even for their own models showed that that would save a lot of people. Um, uh, that would lead to a lower death toll uh, because older Americans are disproportionately white. Um, but the distribution mechanism they came up with, which is to make a huge number of uh, so-called essential workers eligible, actually ended up prioritizing the affluent and well-resourced because you ended up with way too many uh, people are eligible for the number of vaccines that are actually there. And so who got vaccines? People like me who could spend their days just refreshing the CVS website and driving really far away to a rural pharmacy that had spots available, right? Um, and I think Marx is just that attuned to that kind of thing. And at the theoretical level, they recognize that racial equity is con is, is compatible with, with deep inequality. Um, that, uh, you know, if only, as uh, Reed puts it, this ideology of race disparitarianism, right? But what really mad matters is the disparities between races. Well, that means that if there's 13% of billionaires in the United States who are black, we've achieved the mission. But that could mean that a lot of people are poor and some people are extremely rich. That doesn't seem to be a vision of an actually better society. So that's, I think, why, why there's sort of these, these powerful Marxist critiques that even for I myself, I'm not a Marxist, um, I, I, I build on and I take seriously. But I've, 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 I've so far escaped answering the, more, the harder part of your question. Well, you can, you can certainly answer the, the bit about why you think it is that maybe liberals have struggled to push back. And, and I suppose actually picking up on the religious language, um, as well as Marxist, you also have a number of Catholic scholars, people like Patrick Deneen, for example, um, who've been very effective in, in providing another way of understanding this. So, so you have Marxists, you have Catholics, but you know, I think it's one of the things that's very impressive about this book is that it is making a liberal case for avoiding what you've characterized as this identity trap. Yeah, I think part of that is the way in which liberals uh, used to own the institutions that have now been colonized by what I'm calling the identity synthesis, right? So Marxists are operating a little bit in their own sphere. And conservatives have counter institutions where, you know, if uh, Ibram X. Kendi criticizes you, that's a badge of honor, right? That's a badge of pride, right? Like if you're working at the uh, Heritage Foundation or at wherever and Kendi comes after you on Twitter, 
um, you know, that, that gets you a bonus next year, right? Um, if you're a liberal working in a mainstream institution like a university, you're worried that your dean sends you an email saying, well, some people on Twitter are insinuating that you're a terrible person. What's going on here? Our students are going to be upset, right? So, so you know, I think it takes a lot more courage for people within mainstream institutions to stand up against this ideology. I think there's also just a kind of misplaced niceness, right? I think um, a lot of liberals have wrongly conceptualized uh, a lot of these ideas as going too far in the wrong direction, right? Oh, these, you know, young people and activists and students, you know, they're just a little bit, you know, they're going a little bit too far, but they're really, they're happy, you know, the heart is in the right place. They're really trying to do the right kind of thing. Now, I have a lot of sympathy for them. I think personally, a lot of them are very well-intentioned individuals who really want to, to remedy genuine injustices. But the ideology is not going too far in the right direction. It is going in the wrong direction. It is actually attacking what I think of as the proudest liberal tradition in the United States, which extends from people like Frederick Douglass to um, Abraham Lincoln to uh, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and in some ways to people like, 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 like Barack Obama. And so that's why I try to formulate an explicitly liberal response to these ideas. So to go back to this rational reconstruction of the identity synthesis, there's three main claims, right? Number one, the key prism for understanding society is to think of identity categories like race, gender, and sexual orientation. Number two, the values of the Constitution, of the Bill of Rights, uh, in some ways even the key landmark rulings of the civil rights movement, like Brown versus Board of Education, according to Derek Bell, they were really just meant to pull the wool over people's eyes, right? The function was not to make the world a better place. The function was to cloak and perpetuate racial, sexual, and other forms of discrimination. And in fact, we haven't made any progress. According to Derek Bell, America today is as racist as it was in 1850 or 1950, right? And so therefore, the only solution we can envisage is to rip those institutions up, is to get rid of any form of those universal values and explicitly make how we treat people depend on the kind of group into which they were born. According to Bell, a Brown versus Board was a mistake. And in some ways, we should have created schools that were separate but truly equal. Um, now, I think liberals struggle to respond to that, but there is a very clear response. Uh, I have a point-by-point -point rebuttal in the book, and that's number one. Uh, of course, race, gender, and sexual orientation matter to understand the world, but so do other kinds of uh, concepts like social class, like religion, like uh, individual preference and taste and merit and choice, um, like a whole set of other things. And rather than coming to each situation with a pre-existing assumption about it. That's why I'm not a Marxist. They look at every situation and say, it's going to be class, right? And advocates of the identity synthesis look at every uh, situation and say, it's going to be something like race. And I say, well, it depends on the circumstance. You have to look, let the actual empirical evidence shape what the most useful prism in each particular circumstance is. Secondly, no, the, the values, the neutral values, the universal values that we've been aspiring to in America is what has allowed us to make progress. Frederick Douglass recognized the hypocrisy of his fellow citizens when he was invited to give a speech celebrating the 4th of July, saying, how can you celebrate the idea that all men are born equal when there's still slavery in this land? But he didn't say, therefore, rip up the Constitution. He said, therefore, by what right are you excluding us from the enjoyment of those same liberties, of those same protections? We should live up to these things. He didn't say free speech was a bad idea because it allowed people to say terribly racist things in his day, vilely racist things. He said it is the dread of tyrants because it allows people to fight for emancipation. 
But but isn't I mean that isn't that one of the key elements of this shift? It's certainly something that is very noticeable, been very noticeable to me over the course of my lifetime. Uh, that that universalism is no longer at the heart of what people that you're talking about here want in terms of change. No, absolutely. And so I think liberals need to uh, recover their fight for that universalism rightly understood. And universalism doesn't mean that you're incapable of recognizing that our society today is not universalist in practice. It doesn't mean that you ignore discrimination. It means that you want to build a world in which how we're treated and how we see each other comes to be less rather than more dependent on the groups into which we're born because we've managed to overcome and remedy many of those injustices. One key distinction is between, uh, you know, the word race blind, I think is a really unhelpful term because it it runs together two very different things, which is, uh, do you want a society in which we pretend that race doesn't exist and so we're not able to uh, uh, study and recognize inequalities? No, of course, that would be a bad idea. But do you want a society in which how people are treated will come to be less dependent on race and which what opportunities people have will come to be less dependent on race and which how we can converse with each other will become less dependent on the identities we're born to? Yes, absolutely. And that's the key distinction. Um, just a last sociological observation. I think liberals have just become complacent. I mean, I'm shocked by the fact that some of the people who've taught me what it is to be a liberal um, and taught me ideas have sort of rolled over and accepted some of these ideas. And, and I think that there's just a lack of belief in many of them. And I'm struck when I go to France that it still feels a little bit different there. Um, France, I think, has Republican values that have shortcomings of their own, uh, but sometimes are too focused on class rather than race, for example. Um, but elites in France really have a genuine belief and commitment in their ideas. And they're willing to fight for them and they're willing to take personal risks in them. I think the old class of liberal elites in the United States has come to be, uh, frankly, uh, insufficiently committed to their own ideas, insufficiently able to formulate and uh, express them, and insufficiently willing to uh, take personal risks in order to defend them. And so perhaps it's time for a new generation of liberals who are more able and willing to do that. Yeah, because the the future that you actually predict for liberals is is actually quite bleak because your vision of the future, if if things carry on in uh, in the same way that they are now, is that the proponents of the of the uh, identity uh, thesis will dominate cultural institutions, uh, particularly universities, but the right wing populists. Uh, will dominate politics. Uh, and so within that, apart from being being very bleak by itself, there is there is very little room for the center ground, for liberals, uh, for anything approaching what Schlesinger called the vital center. Well, I think that's the danger, right? And, and so I really do think, uh, as I hinted at earlier, of these uh, two movements as mutually reinforcing. I mean, one of the reasons why it became so hard to push back against misguided uh, uh, ideas on the left in the last years was that Donald Trump won the 2016 presidential election. And that really made uh, in-group critics seem not in good faith, but rather traitors. Um, uh, you know, there was a misplaced energy where when you're unable to displace Trump from office, what you could do is to make life miserable for the guy down the hall. And, and so that's what helped those ideas gain that dominance in universities, in nonprofit organizations, and increasingly in other spaces like corporations and religious communities uh, as well. Um, conversely, one of the big reasons why Trump is running even with Joe Biden in the 2024 uh, polls 
is that so many Americans feel that I don't share this assessment, but they feel that the Democrats are further out of the mainstream than Republicans. When you ask people, do you think Democrats are too extreme and Republicans are too extreme, more Americans say that about Democrats than they do about Republicans. Um, and in fact, according to a really interesting recent analysis in the New York Times, there's about 10% of the Republican electorate, which are people who are predominantly non-white, um, predominantly liberal or moderate uh, on social issues who are, uh, for example, very accepting of trans people, but who really worry about what they call wokeness in mainstream institutions. And they are in the tank for Donald Trump. And so I think... Uh, a lot of people feel that there's a strategic choice they have to make. But yes, I'm worried about these ideas on the left, but isn't the far right much more threatening? I think I have a pretty good track record of fighting against the far right. My last two books were on that. I was a democracy crisis hipster. I worried about the crisis of democracy before it was cool. I came on this podcast to talk about this with you many years ago. Um, but I think that's a wrong strategic choice. You have to fight against both at the same time in order to win. But I wouldn't be quite as pessimistic as you for two reasons. The first is, I think this is just going to be the fight of the next 25 years. In the same way in which for a lot of the second half of the 20th century, you know, a lot of history, politics, sociology departments had fights between Marxists and liberals. Um, I think now we're going to have fights between liberals and advocates of the identity synthesis. Um, and, and the liberal case is forming itself a little bit. But that's why we need to understand these ideas and muster the best arguments against them. And that is what I've tried to create with the Identity Trap, a manual for how to take these ideas seriously and fight back against them at the highest level so that we can actually uh, win this battle. And the last thing I will just say in general about liberalism is that very few people think of themselves as liberals, uh, perhaps in the partisan sense, but not in the philosophical sense. Um, very few people in the United States, in Germany, in France would be able to explain what the basic uh, tenets of liberal philosophy are. But I do think that most Americans, most Germans, most French people are liberals. That when they see liberal uh, values and norms violated in the social environment, they bristle against that. And when it becomes too bad, they start to organize against that. And, and that gives me hope. The book is The Identity Trap, A Story of Ideas and Power in Our Time. It's written by my guest, Yasha Munk, and it's published by Penguin Press. Uh, but for now, Yosha, always a pleasure. Congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you. I really enjoyed that. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Laura Silverman, and this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. 